I'm excited about this morning. Well, I'm excited about every time we get together together as a family. There's a lot going on in all of our lives, in this house, in what God's doing in the earth, and how things have shifted. There's a huge shift that has already taken place. We talk about that a lot, and I don't want to use or over-spiritualize words so that it kind of becomes cloudy to what we're actually doing. Because I believe we're, we're to be focused, we're to be keyed in on what Father's speaking and releasing in this region. And I love the fact that here at Freedom Point, we're trying to find the heart of God and build around that. We're not building buildings and trying to build programs and ask God to send people to them. That's, I believe that's a misguided perception of how you do things in the kingdom because we see in Scripture that the body existed or exists, the church we call it today, the ecclesia in the original text. That's a whole different sermon. But they exist for the maturing of the saints. In other words, an apostle or people would come into a region and they, their, their sole uh, focus would be, focus would be, I told you we make up words around here. Their sole purpose would be to transform the culture, change, change management. That would be the focus of the apostle. That would be the thrust of what was happening. And I've heard people say, oh, this guy reminds me of the apostle Paul. And the reason they say that is because these people are church planters. And that's not what Paul was at all. He wasn't a church planter. Paul believed in changing culture, transforming civilizations, transforming cities to where the government structure of those cities would become the government structure of our God. The cities of the world, the nations of the world, the kingdoms of the world would become the kingdoms of our God. He took the environment of heaven and infused earth. He, he lived out the prayer of Jesus on earth as it is in heaven. He understood that there was no gap between heaven and earth, that there was no gap between what we call secular and spiritual. There is no secular us and spiritual us. We are all who we are. We are spirit beings. We are what we are. And that the civilization and culture of our city should look like heaven. There should be nothing in heaven that's not on earth. No cancer in heaven, there should be no cancer in the earth. And what we're trying to do is, is follow his heart for this region, follow his heart for what he wants here, and we're trying to build around that. We're trying to press in to what he has for us in that area. And the message I have this morning is it, it can go so many different ways, so we're just going to see how Holy Spirit takes us. But again, I want to retouch on the concept of balance because that is key to what's happening in Freedom Point. We must maintain balance or else we'll be and repeat history. We'll be like all our predecessors. We'll take something that God's releasing. The, um, the blessing message, they call it something else prosperity message that message was released by heaven into the body so that we could understand how to strategically position ourselves to receive the provision that heaven wanted to release in the body 
to grow the kingdom, to infuse the earth with supernatural finance so that the body could be mobilized and reproduce kingdom. But because unbalanced people got a hold of that message, they made that message the mark. They focused on prosperity. Prosperity became the pinnacle of what they were after. And they perverted the message. And that, that move of God was thwarted because men didn't know how to walk in balance. They didn't know how to steward the provision of God. So it was perverted, manipulated into something that God was trying to release for us. When all in Scripture we understand that we are co-laborers with God in the earth to accomplish His will and to make sure that His will is manifested in the earth. So we're co-laborers with Him. So anytime He would infuse me with provision financially, I understand as a balanced and mature individual that that provision is coming into my life so that I can disperse it and mobilize kingdom. You know, we're in the process now of working with real estate agents to purchase properties, properties for our transition homes, properties for our recovery centers, properties for, you know, everything that we believe God has called us to do. We're working with real estate agents now to, in foreclosure situations to try to buy property at the cheapest that we can buy. I mean, that's good stewardship. And God said, bring the tithe into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house. That word meat means provision. So God, he intends for his house to be a house of provision. It's not about blinging out the pastor. It's not about pimping out the church limo. It's not about putting, you know, people up in the, in the Winfrey or five-star hotels and, and sending gifts and, and providing everything. You know, it's not for that. The provision that God is asking you to bring is so that people who know how to steward the kingdom and have been given authority in certain areas can release that provision into the earth to see that heaven invades earth. That's why... We have to make sure that we maintain a balanced and structured life in Him so that we don't go off and pursue something that He never intended. So, have you ever heard of, of, of deconstructionism when it comes to literature or text? Deconstructionalism or deconstructionist, they try to teach, I'm, I'm going to show you how this is appropriate, they try to teach that when you're reading a text or some form of literature or that the author, the author's life or the context in which the author lived or the meaning of, of, of words, the etymology of words in the time that the author lived has no meaning, has no reference. The text means what it means relative to the reader. Now this is important in our, like our constitution. You have deconstructionists who have high positions of authority in our court system, in our government system, who are attempting to remove what the original authors of our Constitution meant. They're attempting to say it doesn't matter how they lived, it doesn't matter the times in which they lived, it doesn't matter the context in which they lived when they wrote the Constitution. What matters is how we interpret it. Well, that's relative to Scripture as well. Deconstructionism is alive in the church. 
And what they're saying is it doesn't matter about Paul. It doesn't matter about Paul's life. It doesn't matter about Paul's history. It doesn't matter about the culture in which the text was written. The text is what the text is relative to the interpretation that we have for it. But I'm going to tell you that context is everything. In Scripture, context is everything. You cannot even begin to try to even remotely discern Scripture, two-thirds of the New Testament, if you don't know who Paul is. If you don't understand where Paul came from, if you don't understand Paul's learning, when Paul makes reference to intellect, you really can't grasp what Paul's saying. Context is everything. When Paul writes 1 Corinthians, the letter is addressing church situations that have arisen in a church that he organized around the revelation of Jesus Christ. New believers, new converts came to this revelation of Jesus, gave their life to the salvation message, and there was a body birth. And this was about 54 to 59 years after Christ. So within 50 to 60 years, they had already begun to pervert the word. They had already begun to pervert the message. And Chloe and some other people that were part of that church sent message to Paul in, in some things that were creeping up in the church, and these letters were addressing these problems. If you don't understand that, you can't really understand when Paul starts talking about love. In 1 Corinthians 13, why is Paul addressing love? Because there was an abuse of spiritual gifts, there was an entitlement mentality to this church, and there were people that were trying to exhort or, or impose their spirituality over other people. Sectarianism had, had crept into this church to the point that there were factions within the church, people who were saved supposedly by Paul, people who were saved by Cephas, people who were saved by Apollos, and they were saying, well, I was baptized by this one, I was baptized by that one. And you understand that Paul's response in this letter was a response to those problems. So it puts Paul's explanation of love in perspective. Because God is speaking to this house about love. And if we're not careful, though, we'll make love the pinnacle. Just like the prosperity message makes prosperity the pinnacle. When love is a foundational understanding... If we truly believe scripture, we understand that love is God. So to be taught about love, we're being taught about God. We're being taught about who he is as a person. We're getting understanding, revelation of how God exists and what, what type of individual or what type of being he is and how he sees us now in our relationship, the theology of it all, our relationship with God, God's relationship with us and how that is correct or incorrect and how we're supposed to make it and live amongst each other, how we're supposed to guard ourselves. And this is the key thing about love. Love is, um, love is a motive revealer. You know, we've been talking a lot about Isaiah 58, 59, 60, 61, what God has called us to do. This is the facet I have chosen. You know, God's not speaking that to us so that we can make a laundry list of things that we think God wants us to do. And if we check that laundry list off, then we're good with God. I was asking the Lord, Father, your word says that love never fails, yet in the earth it is often perceived or looked at 
and, and honestly, I see it, that love fails quite often. You have a young mother who is trying her best to love her husband. She's loving him unconditionally, and he still cheats on her, and he still abandons her. In that situation, it looks like love failed. Are we so religious? I mean, are, are, is that true? Yeah, it appears that love in that situation failed. Father and mother try to love their child and, and, and try to love them unconditionally and, and, and there's still rebellion and there's still misconduct and it looks like love fails. So I ask God, what's up? But to understand what he meant, you have to put that scripture in context. To say that love fails is the truth. Because God is love, and God never fails. People fail. People fail. We get that out of context and thinking that if we love people, then we'll never have problems, we'll never have situations that aren't resolvable. And that's not true, because people have free will. I can love Paul with all of the love of the Father. I can show him unconditional love. No strings attached. And he has to make a choice. He can refuse that love or he can accept that love. If, if we had an understanding that if love is shown, it won't fail, then why are so many people going to end up separated from God for eternity? Why are so many people going to die in rebellion and refusing to accept the love that God showed through Jesus? Do we understand there is a hell? There's a heaven. Those things are real. Whether, whether you want to talk about them or not, they're real. A lot of people are going to end up in hell, separated for eternity from God. I do believe that we are going to play a part in how many. Because God's promised us a harvest. And if we will co-labor with him correctly, we will see a harvest. An unbelievable, unsurmountable amount of of souls that are coming into the kingdom if we do what we've been asked to do. But people have the right to reject that love. So it's not the fact that people never fail. It's the fact that love shows up, love is present, and that word fail means to fall away. The word love will never fall away. God will never fall away. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So we have to understand the context in which that's written to really get a revelation of what it means that love will never fail. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love endures all things. Love endures all things. That means when you're counseling with a young lady who's being mentally and physically abused by her husband, you should tell her to stay in that relationship because love endures all things. So I'm saying you've got to set that within the context in which Paul was writing. Paul was writing to people who had an entitlement mentality, had a selfish mentality, had a me over you mentality. And Paul was teaching them that through God and a correct relationship with God, we can understand what love is and then how love would look like fleshed out in the life of a believer. So you've got to set that in context or else we'll, we'll try to, we'll misinterpret what God is saying to this house. And this was something that, that I was talking to the Lord about. 
he said this to me. Me and the Lord have dialogue. Y'all have dialogue with Father too. Y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. We were talking, and the Lord said it's like this. When you're a young believer and you go out on a treasure hunt, all right, you know what treasure hunts are where we go out and we look for people, their treasures in God's eyes. He gives us information through prayer about who we're going to come across. And when we come across them, if you've ever been on these trips, then, you know, that's the treasure. They're the treasure. And then we minister to them. If you go on a treasure hunt and your motive for going is because you want to see the sign and wonder, then as an immature believer, there's a certain amount of grace on that. And you will see... Uh, a manifestation of healing in that. A certain level. You won't see 100% across the board everybody you pray for get healed. But you will see a manifestation of the gift of healing through grace show up in your life and you'll see a manifestation. Even if your motive is not pure. But that is where you will live if you don't understand or, or walk into a relationship of love. I was asking God, how come sometimes you pray for people and they don't get healed? How come sometimes you pray for them and they do get healed? And he always takes me back to motive. Why are you praying for them? And I honestly believe if we can tap into love, if we can understand how to walk this earth with the love and compassion of Jesus, because the word says, as he was in the earth, so are we. If we can tap into that, then that's when 100% healing will be released. When your motives are pure. Because what's happening is we pray for people and it's okay to get excited and want to see them healed. But what is the motive? Now I know there are other things that play into that. Could be fear that play into that. Could be doubt that play into whether you see healings or not. But for us to walk in what God is calling us to walk in, for us to be light in the earth and understand that we are light, for us to be able to be a city set on a hill, and if you notice, light invades darkness, but a city set on the hill, people come to. Paul said, you know, this guy came to him and said, I'm suicidal. Why did he do that? Because God said you will be a light and you'll be a city. You'll be light that goes in and invades darkness, but you'll be a city that people come to. So you'll go. We understand the go message, but we also have to learn how to walk in humility and steward when people come. So he was attracted to that light, which is a manifestation of some of that vision that you've been getting on Wednesdays. He was attracted to that light. He didn't know what it was. He didn't know how to put vocabulary with it. He didn't have an understanding of it. But when people say, I don't know what it is about you, I'm just kind of drawn to you, that's a light. Darkness attracts darkness. Light attracts light. When people need hope birthed inside of them, that's going to be drawn to people who have hope, people who have light. And so he was drawn to your light. If Paul is not a man of love... If that repeatedly happens to Paul, Paul could allow that to skew his motives. He could operate in pride and arrogance from that point. Ha ha, he came to me. And that's fine. That's fine to be encouraged by that. It's fine to be uplifted by that. 
But if you're not a person who understands love and, and can walk in that love in respect to who he is and who we are and manifest that love, if you don't know how to steward that, then it's going to corrupt you. And I believe sometimes that's why we see revival thwarted. We see revival stopped because what happens is, let me tell you something else, and this is happening all over this house. How many of you begin to pray and press in and things in your life just turn to crap? All right. We got about four honest people and the rest of you are lying. The re you want me to tell you why that happens? What do you really think is going to happen because we believe revival is not a series of consecutive meetings. That is not revival. That's what the church calls revival, but that's not revival. Revival is not when you have a guest speaker come in, you have a week worth of, of messages at night. That's not revival. Revival is a lifestyle. Revival is a continual walk and lifestyle. That's revival. When you pray for revival or when you're in a revival and you pray for God to send fire, you pray for God to refine you, to purify you. What do you think is going to happen? Who's got something gold on? Anybody got any gold on? She's got a gold shirt. Anybody got a ring or anything? Can I borrow a, a watch? All right. Got a gold tooth? Well, let's leave that where it is. Unless it's a grill. I mean, is it a grill? Okay, it's an action tooth. All right. This, I'm going to give this back, I promise. This is a gold watch. I don't know what carrot it is, but... From my, just me examining this, it looks perfect. I don't really see any flaws in it. It looks great. But I assure you that if I put this in a, in a cast iron pot and I put some flux in with it and I put a fire under it, then eventually this watch would begin to melt. There are other components in this watch. There are other metals in this watch. There are other things in this watch that would begin to what? Rise to the top, right? So when the fire is applied, the impurities automatically are going to do what? We're told this in Scripture. He's called the refiner's fire. All right. So when we're in revival and we ask God to send the fire, we want God's power to force us to be something that we're not at the moment. We're wanting God to come in and make us something. But you have to be very careful and very astute to what you're praying for because when you pray for revival, revival doesn't... How many of you have seen or heard of revivals that were stopped because of uh, uh, either a sinful sexual encounter or something like that? How many of you have heard of that? All right? and, and so people get this mentality that in revival it's easy to fall off. And what's happening is immature people aren't following the, the uh, advice of older generations who've been through it, they don't seek their counsel, they don't follow their wisdom, so they walk in revival. When, when revival fire comes, the first thing that's going to happen is there's going to be a purification process of the people who are in the revival. So when you pray for revival in your marriage, you better understand that all the imperfections and impurities of your marriage are going to rise to the top. So the, the mess is coming to the surface. When you ask God to refine you and you start having these frustrating emotions and things that you're dealing with and you say, God, I was praying for you to heal me and make me whole and, and give me the fire of the Holy. What you were really asking God to do is make you somebody different 
and he's doing that, he's not doing it the way you want him to do. And God won't, he can't deal with your mess until he puts pressure on that spot that causes that mess to come to the top. And see, then we get discouraged and we get mad at God when he's simply doing what fathers do. If fathers have children who have bad attitudes in certain areas, if they're, if they're smart and mature, they'll apply pressure in that area and force that attitude to come to the top where it can be dealt with. So in our marriages or in our personal life, on our job, God, refine me, God, you know, heal my, my career and give me this and give me that. And then we go in Monday and all you know what breaks loose and we're griping and complaining at God when God is purifying that situation. And listen, this is the problem with the modern day church in North America is that we can't talk when crap hits the fan in our marriages. Because if we tell people, I can't stand him, or I can't stand her right now, then the church judges us, causes us un, unholy and unreligion, un, unreligious and impure, and we have to put on this facade that everything's okay when it's not. And that's why God is infusing us with love, because right now some of you, including myself, I'm not, I'm not exempt from this. I'm not holier than thou. I ask God to refine me. I better believe that if there's any insecurities or any vulnerability in me, that God's going to apply pressure and it's going to rise to the top. And what God is doing in this house is taking away every crutch you have. He's taking and exposing every insecurity that you possess. And it may be frustrating you and it may be causing you turmoil emotionally and spiritually, but if he doesn't cause it to rise to the top, you on your own will never deal with it. You'll live in that marriage for another 10 years and never deal with the situation in your marriage. And if you're going to be whole and you're going to walk in love and we're going to lead other marriages to the cross, we better have our stuff together. Or else, you know what we are at that point? Hypocrites. Trying to tell people how to live that we can't live. Oh, you got to, you got to, you know, you got to communicate. You got to, you got to sit down, you got to have date night, you got to have all these things, and you're telling people how to live a life you don't live. That's the voice of a hypocrite. So now what's happening in this house is God's shaking us all. Everything that can be shaken is being shaken. And when something arises in your life or in your marriage, you better deal with it. Or it's going to cause separation. And if these revivalists were mentored by people who loved them, they would understand that, hey, God's called you to be a revivalist. God is birthing this revival through you in this community. But let me tell you what's going to happen. All right? I'm here in your life to make sure that you and your wife are sound. Because anything that's wrong in your relationship, this revival fire is going to bring to the top. And we got to make sure we deal with it. And problem is they think they're so holy that these problems can just be shouted out or shouted at or rebuked and they don't deal with the issue and it causes them to fail. And that's the way in our marriages. Look, I'm all about Holy Ghost explosions. I'm all about people falling out. I'm all about running around and, and all. Hey, I'm down with all that. But if you're running around this church and you go home and you're still arguing with your wife, you need to quit running. You need to get some counsel with some godly people and you need to find out why you and your wife can't stand one another. Because you can shout at that all day long and it's not going away. 
If you can't control your anger and your wrath and, you can't, and you're such a person that nobody wants to be around, you don't need to worry about shouting and, and falling out and jerking. How, I mean, how many more prophetic words do we need? How many more times do we need to jerk in the Holy Ghost to deal with the mess that's really in our life? And listen, when I preach like that, people think that I'm against that. I'm not. I'm not against salvation. You understand that? I mean, if we're balanced, I'm not against people getting saved. I think that people think I'm against that. I don't, I'm not against that. I just don't think it's the pinnacle that people make it. When it's clear in Scripture that salvation is the beginning, it is not the finish line. I want people to get saved. I mean, that is what I'm about. You coming into relationship with Jesus. But now that you're in relationship with Jesus, let's start our life. Paul said you should have moved on from this, Mark. But because you've refused to mature, now I've got to go back and give you the milk of the word again. You should be chewing meat by now. But you got stuck at salvation. Now, that's not a negative, but if people hear that out of context, they're going to think that, well, Pastor Lee, don't put an emphasis on salvation. Of course I do. But everybody I pray for for healing, I don't try to witness to. Not in the context of getting them to repeat a prayer after me. Getting somebody to repeat a prayer after you is like forcing somebody into rehabilitation. That don't work. Until that person can come from a place in their heart that they're willing to yield their life. And repentance is, is, is by far misunderstood in the context of our uh, uh, culture anyway. Repentance is not saying I'm sorry. Repentance is changing the way you think. That is the original definition of the word to repent. Change the way you think. And what is it that leads men and women to repentance? The goodness of God. So standing on a box on the street corner and telling people how pathetic and miserable they are, is that what Scripture says leads them to repentance? Is that what leads them to change the way they think? Praying for somebody's knee when their knee's blown out and they got a brace on, praying for their knee and seeing a supernatural manifestation of the power of God heal them instantly, that will cause them to change the way they think. They will have to deal with that miracle that just took place. When that miracle manifests, you know what's going to happen now? They got to deal with it. They're forced to make a decision. You telling them a story, and listen, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, to cause you not to do that. Please do that. But I'm telling you that they can refute anything you try to say. That's, that's why the church is not making any impact today because we don't have any power. We don't have any manifestation, you know. What drew people to Jesus to begin with was that he walked in power and he spoke with authority. And that even the winds and waves obeyed his command. And then he got to teach them about the kingdom. All of this coming at us. All of this coming at us from different ways. God moving us and positioning us into a place. We know there's an open heaven. You, you've heard us talk about that. that. That is true. That is awesome. We know that, that God wants us to be an extroverted church, not an inverted church, an extroverted church, where, where this is not going to be a house that accumulates people. This is going to be a house that equips people to be released as revivalists. That's why we started the Supernatural School of Ministry. This is going to be a house where some of you are going to be deployed. You're going to be shot out of here. One of the prophetic words we received from Abner was that he saw like a slingshot. 
And people were being set in the slingshot and shot out of here, around the globe. This is going to be an equipping center, an apostolic center to teach people how to go into a region and transform the culture. I'm trying to set up a dinner with the principal of Mormon Jordan right now because i got a few prophetic words for him, and I've got some ideas on how if we can co-labor together, we can transform the school system in this community. And it's going to be more than me trying to come in and have, a, 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 you know, what do they call that, assembly and say some cool stuff. I'm not even, want, I, I'm going to ask him, don't mention my name and don't mention our church. Because this is not about me trying to put my face on something. This is about me wanting to work with him behind the scenes until God pushes it out front so that we can begin, you know what, when, when a church that is following God truly in love comes into a region, there should be measurable decrease in sin, there should be measurable decrease in poverty, the divorce rate that is measurable should go down. Teenage pregnancy should go down. STDs, at one point about two years ago, Jefferson County was the highest rated it had the highest rated STD rate of any city or county in the nation. Based per capita, percentage against population. Per capita, the highest STD rate. That should decrease when kingdom is released. Listen, God is showing us that there's got to be a collision and an adjoining of the strategic and the supernatural. In two weeks... The 30, 31st, and June 1st, this house will be closed because we're taking the leadership team away. I wanted to get them away where I could have them for three days. And God is going to birth in us a strategic outlook, how we can put together the strategic, the, the, the uh, apostolic supernatural environment with administrative strategic or change management. There has to be a... How many of you have ever dealt with change management? The world has taken kingdom principles and they apply it and they're successful. It's time we bring it back into the kingdom where it was given birth to. So they're not only, we should not only hit our knees in prayer, but we should be in the community to the effect that there is measurable change. Because guys, five years from now, if we haven't caused any change in this community, we just need to shut the doors and do something else. We have churches all over America who create zero change in their community. It's not about me and you coming in here and just changing us. It's about releasing mayors, releasing school teachers, releasing superintendents of school systems, releasing firemen and policemen, releasing ER nurses who can bring kingdom to where they are. If you want to lay hands on the sick, I still believe you want to lay hands on the sick, no better place for you than to become a trauma nurse. You have all the trauma you want to lay hands on. You want to raise the dead? Go work at a mortuary. Is that right? I don't know. Is that funeral home? Thank you. You have all of the opportunity to pray for people to be brought back alive that you want. You know, a guy asked me, he said, hey, look, man, I want you to join up and become a part of this organization where you ride with the state troopers. They call you when there's been a fatality. And although I haven't signed up to do that yet, I'm thinking to myself, you know what? If I want to see the dead raised, what a better place to be 
can ride up on the scene where there's been a fatality with the state trooper. If I want to be a ministry, what better ministry would there be? So, I mean, it's about changing our mentality. It's about changing the paradigm in which we see kingdom. It's about understanding the context of the society in which we live and the context of what God is releasing based upon what we know. One more example. The word gay. How many of you know that word's taking on a whole new context, right? Just let me give you an example. In the early 14th century, the word gay meant stately and beautiful, splendid and showily dressed. In the late 14th century, it mean, means full of joy, merry, lighthearted. In writings in the 1890s, you can find the word that means prostitution and brothel. In 1893, there was a literary work released in which a young hobo, a new newly homeless person was called a gay cat. Why does that matter? Because if you pick up one of these books or literature, you know, whatever you'll call them, if you pick one up from, say, the 1893, and you see the word gay, if you don't understand how to set that word in context, you're not going to be able to understand the writing. Right? A hundred years from now, if people try to interpret our writings without setting it in our context, they're going to misinterpret script. They're going to misinterpret the word. If we don't take love, if we don't take fathering and mothering, if we don't take mentorship, if we don't take releasing kingdom principles, if we don't take deployment, if we don't take a city set on a hill, if we don't take open heaven, if we don't take all of these things and learn how to balance them and set them in context to form the aggregate, the wholeness of what God is trying to do, we're going to become unbalanced. We'll be no different than anybody else. And what God is trying to do, it's like I was telling Paul, does everything that we do at Freedom Point reflect what we say we believe? We say... We're about raising up and stewarding a revival that lasts for thousands of years so that the next generation and the next generation and the next generation just move in a momentum that we create. That's what we say we're about. Are we re reproducing that in the students? Have we put any focus to recreate that environment when they meet? How about the children? See, you can say something and you can truly believe it, but the problem is, are you reproducing it? We have to be open and available to God to understand the context of our society, our culture. Where do we live? We live in Kimberly. We live in Morris. We live in Hayden. We live in Gardendale. We, what is our culture that we've been set in? What, what's the culture? What's the heartbeat of this society? Paul Man Warren talked about a pastor that, that he helped launch a church up in Detroit. Well, the people in Detroit at that time, they were working 12, 14, 16 hours a day in the auto industry. They were working Monday through Saturday. Sunday was the only day they had off. This church was failing because nobody would come to church on Sunday. So they began to seek and pray to God, and God said, move your service to Saturday night. 
So the pastor moved the service to Saturday night. You know what happened? Immediately, his church just grew by leaps and bounds. Why? Because the people were getting off work, and they knew they could rest on Sunday. They knew they could spend time with their families on Sunday, so they would come to church, and they didn't care what time church got out Saturday night because they could rest on Sunday. That's understanding the context of your culture. <coughs> and that's what we've been called to do. Love looks like something. Last Sunday, Leah got up, and Leah told us about a situation where she worked. We could have said, man, we're praying for you, Leah. We're praying for them three boys. But love looks like something. So you guys gave. We didn't write a check from the church. You gave it out of your pocket. Almost $500 before she got to that truck that was released into those boys' lives that positioned them from a place of poverty with no shoes on their feet. So now they not only have shoes and shorts and socks, but now they can run track. They hadn't been to this church and may never set foot in this church and it don't make a hill of beans. <laughs> that's not what it's about. So that set in the context of love is a display of what God's talking about. And all I wanted to share with you this morning, I didn't really talk about anything specific other than I want us to understand that whatever God speaks to us, we have to be balanced and set it within the context of what he's saying as a whole. God's speaking to us expressly about love, but we can't make love the pinnacle. He's speaking to us expressly about the supernatural, but that is not what we go after. We go after him. We go after a relationship with him, and we ask him to reproduce himself in and through us. Let us become one with you in the earth. <coughs> That's what we're after. So whatever you hear from the Holy Spirit, whatever you hear from us, and whatever you hear from the Lord, make sure that you go back and you set that in context to your life. Look at your life right now. If, if there's a bunch of situations in your life rising to the top, then we got to deal with those. I've told you a million times, I can help you deal with anything, but we have to be honest. If you call me for counsel and, and you're a married couple and you're not going to be honest with me, then you're just wasting your time and my time. If you can sit down and look me in the face and say, you know what, over the years, blah, 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 blah. Let's get it out on the table. Let's get honest with it. Let's get into it and let's get healed. Because pretending ain't going to get it. If you look at me every, every Sunday and you hurt and jerk and you amen me, and then I know you're a jerk, dude, we got some problems. I get frustrated, man. I was frustrated at the beginning of last week. You know? I think Paul even kind of commented on, to me about it. You know, sometimes things rise up in me and God's saying, look, this area right here, you know, you got to relinquish some control. You're trying to manipulate that area. You're trying to control it. You got to give it to me. You say you give it to me, but you hadn't. And until you give it to me, I'm going to put pressure on it. You got a sore spot, I'm going to press it until you deal with it. Because you can't stay who you are and go where, you want, where you're asking me to take you. 
If you don't understand how to love the homosexual, if you don't understand that that sin's no different in the eyes of the Lord than you being an addict, if you don't understand that we've got to learn how to communicate with a, I'm not, I'm sorry about that. We have to, we have to learn how to communicate and put together a strategic plan on how to help people come out of homosexuality. You got, we've got to teach them. We've got to, we've got to learn ourselves how to love them correctly. Because right now, all we have for them is hate. Some people don't agree with that. Hey, this won't be the house for you. But let me tell you this. I know I'm holding you late. You got a homosexual male, right? And he, he discerns and feels in his life that that's really not right. Okay? But somewhere in his life, he's associated that encounter with males. And we say... We can love you through this, and we can help you process this. How's he going to process that? How's he going to process into a place where he can have those feelings for females? Because he can't do that outside of wedlock. Because then you're promoting promiscuity, right? So the church has got a dilemma that we better come up with an answer for. Because for him to be able to transition into a place where he can have those same feelings for the opposite sex that he now has for the same sex and be able to work through that and go through that. And I understand there's a supernatural element to that. I totally get that. But to expect God to come down supernaturally heal every one of them, you're going to be very frustrated. How do we help that young man? I was watching, uh, what was that guy, Ron Carpenter? Well, Ron Carpenter called all of the youth. God moved in such a way on him, he called all of his youth up. And he was having serious conversations with his youth. And he told the parents, if you punish them for what I'm asking them when they're honest with me, I'm going to deal with you. So he told the parents, whatever they say right here, you better not deal harshly with them about. Or else I'm, you know, I mean, he got on to the parents, man. He was grilling them. But he said, how many of you have been involved in or been tempted to be in a homosexual relationship? Or at least bisexual relationship. And I bet 70%. I'm talking about Ron Carpenter's churches in the thousands. There was probably three, 4,000 youth. 70% of them stood up. If the church is all, all we're going to produce is hate toward that, you're going to lose a generation. You better learn how to deal with the mess when it comes to the top. And you can't deal with that kind of mess when you're in your own mess. And you can't deal with that kind of mess when you have this, this more highly exalted image of yourself than you should, thinking that you're better than that. So this is, this is where we are. You know, I was talking to somebody else uh, who deals with uh, drug addiction, and I really want them to be honest with me so that I can be honest with them because not only am I trying to help them, and I explained this to them, I said, I'm not just trying to help you, but I'm trying to equip myself. Because evidently, we're going to be involved in this for the rest of our existence. So I have to learn, how can I help a person that's battling? Because if I don't grow and learn in that, what good am I when we're trying to launch our own recovery program? So I said, your honesty is going to, is going to help me as well as you. I can deal with anything if you'll just be honest. Man, I used today. Man, I got some dope on me right now. Man, I'm high right now. 
I'd rather you tell me that than look at me high as a kite and say, I ain't using. Okay. I ain't gay. Oh, my marriage is perfect. Okay. No, I'm good, man. Okay. All right. <laughs> You're the only one that ain't obviously. And in this church, I pray to God that we've created an environment where you guys know that we can be honest with each other. And we can say, dude, I'm struggling. Help me. My marriage is falling apart. What am I going to do? I'm so frustrated over this work, this job. What can I do? Pastor, you overlooked me for a position and it hurt me. Let's talk about it. Let's deal with it.